Welcome to Talking Human Rights. I'm Heather Robertson-Gaston. This is part two of Talking Technology with our guest, Daniel Con gilmore Daniel is the senior staff technologist at the Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project of the American Civil Liberties Union. We're talking about communications technology. We're talking about your iPhone, your email, your Facebook, if you use it. We're talking about how these technologies impact rights and freedoms, and we're talking about how safe we are and free we are in using them. Before I start, I just want to reassure you that this isn't going to be a conversation about how you need to be getting off of Facebook or how you should start using Signal. If you listen to part one, you will know that Yes, Daniel makes very specific choices about his own information security and the software that he uses, but there are also limits to that approach. Not everyone has the time to make those choices. Not everyone has access to those choices. For instance, say you're applying for a job and the people that are, you know, that have invited you to apply also invite you to their Slack channel or to their base camp. It's not like you can say, no, no, you know, I don't use that form of communication. I, I have to do everything in person or I only use Signal. So what we're going to be talking about today are technological solutions that can be implemented broadly to make it so that technology is safer for everyone, including the most vulnerable among us and including people who have no choice but to use the default technology in its default mode. So those are the kinds of solutions we're going to focus on. And the two key terms that I came away from these conversations understanding and that I hope you'll come away understanding if you don't already know them are the terms defaults and protocols. In part one, we talked a lot about the defaults, and that means just what does the technology do when it comes out of the box? What does your iPhone do by default? What does your Facebook do by default? What does the weather app you just downloaded, what does that do by default? We also touched upon protocols, and we'll go into those much deeper in this episode, specifically communications protocols. Communications protocols have an impact on the way that information flows across networks. They have an impact on what can be known about that information, what can be seen, and on so many other things that I'm going to let Daniel explain because he has real expertise in this. So listen for that. And also, what I'm going to do is play this interview for you, and I'm actually going to narrate a bit from present time, just throwing in some little tidbits that I think might be interesting and things that I think might be helpful to you. Again, we're talking to Daniel Con gilmore Senior Staff Technologist at the Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project of the American Civil Liberties Union. So like I said, we're going to talk a lot about protocols in this episode, um, but I want to start with a separate but related discussion about a big obstacle that stands in the way of understanding the way our technology works in the first place, and which therefore stands in the way of fixing our technology. That obstacle is the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which is a piece of law passed in 1984 right on the heels of a blockbuster film called War Games, starring a young Matthew Broderick as a high school hacker who accidentally hacks into a military mainframe and almost starts World War III. The movie made quite an impression on then-President Ronald Reagan and on members of Congress who cited it when discussing the bill, and that bill passed. So that's the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, or the CFAA, which we're going to discuss now. The Computer Fraud and Abuse Act was set up at a time when there was an expectation that there would be a handful of computers around the country. 
and if you were to break into those computers and misuse them, you could do a tremendous amount of damage to the handful of American computers. Well, there's a lot more than a handful of American computers today, and everything is on computers. The CFAA makes exceeding unauthorized access on a computer system a felony with penalties up to something like five years in prison and some hefty fines. So there's open question in the courts right now about what does exceeding authorized access mean? If exceeding authorized access means hackers, like in the movie, breaking into a system, it's one thing. But if it means violating the terms of service, I would encourage your listeners to think about how many terms of service they may have violated today. <laughs> right? I mean, <laughs> actually violated today. Like, do you know? My impression from a number of click-through agreements that people go through is that people don't even have a sense of what counts as a terms of service violation. Can you give us an example of what a researcher might try to do that would be a violation of the CFAA? One of the things you might want to do is you might want to say, well, okay, an organization like Facebook knows a lot about a lot of people. And Facebook does things like show some people some kinds of ads and show other people other kinds of ads. So you could imagine a situation where Facebook's got an ad posting that's encouraging people to apply for a high-level job. Who do they show that ad to? They've got an ad posting for janitorial work. Who do they show that ad to? Right? They might be doing those things in a very equitable and just way across society, or they might be doing it in such a way that white men get all the president's jobs and poor people of color get all the janitor jobs um, because it's more efficient that way or something like that. You could imagine a machine learning algorithm making these decisions. So if you want to be able to tell what's going on in there, Facebook does actually have a privacy interest in hiding that because that's their secret sauce. That's their business model is serving ads to the right people. They want to hide that. But as a society, we have an obligation to try to figure out what is Facebook doing here because it actually has impact on discrimination, right? Which we, which we know that discrimination is a concern. We'd like to try to enforce anti-discrimination laws. You can imagine it not for employment, but for housing or for credit or for other concerns. And it's not necessarily just race, it's also gender or other kinds of protected status. So if you want to see what's actually going on in there, you could ask Facebook to tell you nicely what they're doing, and you could hope that they give you the right answer. Um, but Facebook themselves might not even have the system set up to be able to do that kind of interpretation. If you wanted to study it, one of the things you might do is, well, how do we deal with housing? One of the things that was regularly done was you would send a white person with a bank statement and a resume into a bank and say, I'd like a loan on property X. And they'd say, okay, well, we'll get back to you. And then you'd send a black person in with a comparable bank statement and a comparable resume. And you'd say, I'd like a loan for property X. And you'd see what the bank would do. And if you do that enough times, not too many, you can demonstrate that the bank is doing redlining or some other kind of discriminatory practice. And that's part of the deal of doing, you have to, you could send somebody in and it wastes a little bit of the bank's time, but overall the benefit to society is greater. If you do that on Facebook today, you're violating terms of service, for sure, right? Facebook says you only can have one account for you. The account needs to be identified by your specific name. You can't pretend to be somebody else. You can't change your background. Facebook already knows a, bit, a long history of who you are and what you've done. You're not gonna find two people who can make this comparable comparison. So one thing that you might do is you might invent new people and sign up for Facebook under these new fake people and give them the backgrounds that you're looking for and then see what Facebook does. And that's a violation of the terms of service. So 
you have the situation where a law that was designed to punish and penalize hackers is actually potentially being used in a way to obscure the workings of systems that actually have some pretty broad social impact that you'd like to be able to actually analyze. I actually want to do a quick update after I interviewed Daniel. A group of researchers from Northeastern University, University of Southern California, and a nonprofit digital advocacy organization called Upturn released a paper called Discrimination Through Optimization, How Facebook's Ad Delivery Can Lead to Skewed Outcomes. And it underscores every point that Daniel just made about what this platform can do and why it's important to be able to study it and you know really get in and see what it's doing. But what the study found is that even when the advertisers don't make choices to select or deselect certain populations, the algorithm does it itself. Ads for cashiers and supermarkets, they found, went to an audience that was 85% female, while ads for driving taxis went to a 75% black audience. And the, the list goes on and on, and it's a fascinating study and underscores just how much researchers from the outside can find out. Now I want to shift gears just slightly. I want to include the part where Daniel's talking about a government spying operation that was revealed by NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden in 2014. And this was a program called Co-Traveler, which used cell phones to track locations of their users and their relationships. This could seem like a really big shifting of gears, but actually we're building to a discussion of communications protocols. What is possible in the first place? Like what kinds of information can be collected? What kinds of information can be seen? But I don't want to give it all away. So first, here's Daniel talking about co-traveler. Co-traveler is a good example of a situation where one type of individual information is maybe interesting, but not particularly powerful, but large aggregations of the data put together create a, a different level of intrusiveness. So here, here's specifically how Co-Traveler works. I don't know whether it's still going on. I'd be deeply surprised if they had shut down everything that looks like Co-Traveler. Maybe Co-Traveler is outdated, but if it's not present, I'm sure they're doing something comparable to it, at least somewhere in the world. So Co-Traveler works with mobile phone data. And the way your mobile phone works, your mobile phone is, is a radio, right? And it's a radio that talks to mobile phone towers, the terrestrial base stations. Um, and so your phone is always, even when you're not using it, as long as it's on, it's chatting with the nearest base station saying, hi, you know, I'm Heather Roberson's phone and you can find me over here. And the base station knows, so the base station is connected to a, a wired network and whoever operates the base station is basically feeding that information back into the wired network so that if a call comes in for you, then it can make your phone ring. The call can be routed into the right location. So your phone is always checking in, right? This is a, I like to ask this, this question sometimes people, of, when does your phone talk to a base station, right? And the answer is, and I said it earlier, but the answer is when it's on. Most people will, will, will start if they haven't thought about it before. If I say, when does your phone talk to a base station? They'll say like, when I'm making a call, when I'm on the phone, when I'm on the internet, when someone calls me, but no, the answer is, when it's on, because that's how the messages can get routed. And so your phone is constantly checking in with base stations, and there's a record that's created as a result of that of every time that your phone checks in with a different base station. And so the, the one thing that might be individually interesting is if I wanted to say, hey, where's, where's Heather right now? And I had access to all this data, then bam, I could figure out where you are. That's interesting and a little bit creepy. But the way Co-Traveler works is it deals with lots of phones over time. 
And so I think you could argue that the result of that is significantly more invasive. And so what that does is it says, okay, here's a phone and here are the different places it was over all of this time. And here are all of the phones that we know about and we know all of the places where they were. And so now what I can do is I can say, which phones moved from one base station to another at the same time or around the same time? And how did they move around the network? So we're not just saying like, where's Heather? We're not just saying, where has Heather been? We're actually saying, who was Heather with? And who are the groups of people? So maybe you're driving in a car and your car is the only car that goes in a particular place, right? They now know who was in the car with you because everybody's phones that are in the car have been handing off to all the same base stations over time. Maybe you have a different provider. Maybe you use Sprint and someone else uses AT&T. So maybe they don't use exactly the same base stations, but you can still get a guess as to where the device is. And you can just do a mapping based on the geolocation of the different base stations. So yeah, so this is an example where you have a large data set of details and then what you need is you need a machine that can handle all that much data that much data and you need good algorithms for processing and we have now machines that have that kind of power and that kind of capacity that's not a problem anymore if you'd asked me 20 years ago i would have said that might be too expensive to do today it's trivial like that you know there are only seven billion people probably they don't even all have mobile phones and so you can just track the people who do have mobile phones with these seven billion is not a very big number for the folks who want to do this kind of work. Okay, so now we start talking about another program that Edward Snowden leaked evidence of. And this was a program allegedly designed to track networks systems administrators in order to gain access to all that they can see and even seize their operations. And this is a program called I Hunt Sysadmins. So this is something that is particularly concerning to me as a technologist, as someone who has been a systems administrator, um, who you know works with collectives of people who work on building secure software to support activists and nonprofit organizations and civil society. The credentials that I have allow me to access a lot of data mm-hmm. uh, because I have access to some of these backend systems that people rely on for things like backup um, or cloud-based communications. Now, I don't have access to Amazon or Google or anything at that scale, um, but I still feel like I'm a potential risk for the people that I'm trying to support. Um, and so, again, this is another another like big scale research agenda that I think we need to do better at as a, as a community, but I think we haven't done a good enough job building tools that allow administrators to support people while locking the administrators out of the data that those people have. Right? You can design these tools. You can design them to be limited like that, um, but they're harder to operate. They're more expensive to operate. They're more fiddly when things go wrong. You might lose. There might be more at risk of losing data. And we haven't. You know, there are some groups who are building those things. It's not the default today. Um, if I'm building a new webmail service, the default is I get to read all of the email of all of the people. And if you want to make that webmail service so that I can't read it. I, I need to do like a significant amount more engineering work. And even then, like how do I convince people that it's better to use? Like ProtonMail aims to lock themselves out of the contents of their users' email boxes. Um, does their de- design actually do that exactly? I think there are some gaps in it. But it's a, it's a lot better than say Yahoo Mail is, right? Because they're actually starting to take those steps. So I appreciate that some people are starting to do it, but we have a long way to go there. 
So why is it set up that the system administrator is able to see so much? Like, why is the default a lack of privacy, or at least not a guarantee of privacy? Um, I don't think anybody ever made that decision explicitly. I think what happened was it was hard enough to get email to work in the first place. And so you wanted to, if you want to debug a mailbox and the mailbox is totally opaque to you and you want to figure out why someone can't find a mail that should have been delivered to them, well, maybe you want to be able to just explore it and find the mail, right? So at the initial outset, it was just, can we get this to work at all, right? The initial email protocols, the initial internet protocols, none of them were actually encrypted. There was no privacy hiding from the network operator, no privacy hiding from people on either side, no attempted anonymity. It was just like the internet. And so the default was, let's just make it work. And we're dealing today with the legacy of that, which is that we've built these systems and we continue to build on top of them. And you know, some of us are going back in trying to shim them up with better security mechanisms. Uh, but you know, people still want their email to work in the meantime. Okay, friendly reminder that you are listening to Talking Human Rights. I'm Heather Robertson-Gaston, and our guest is Daniel Kahn Gilmore, Senior Staff Technologist at the ACLU's Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project. In the coming conversation, we're going to be talking about protocol design. So remember, we have talked about a government program that uses cell phones to map the locations of people and to map the relationships between people. We've talked about government efforts to, to track network systems administrators. And back in part one, we talked about a case where a U.S. government task force tried to get Facebook to divulge voice communications between users said to be associated with the international gang MS-13. And if you listened to that section, you may remember that there was a big question about why Facebook would even have those voice messages to divulge. And the reason Daniel gave the discussion we got into was, you know, it, it has to do with how the protocol was set up. So finally, after hearing this word a few times and sensing that it was very important, I asked Daniel to back up and explain what protocols are. Let me, I can explain protocols a little more clearly, right? The protocols that I work on are internet protocols, although there are other protocols that are in use as well. Protocols are, is a word that's generally used to mean sort of the rules of communication between two machines, right? The, you could think of it as a definition of the language that two machines speak. Um, of course, not every machine is, is running the same code, so maybe they speak the language slightly differently than each other, but the protocols sort of define the framework of constraints within which the machines can communicate. So you could imagine a machine that says, um, I'm going to share files, and here's a list of files that I share. And you go to the machine, and you say, give me the list of files that you share. And the machine has a rule about this is how I give you back the list of files that, that I share. Now, maybe that protocol says that you can give the files back in the following way. Each file has a name. The name has up to 200 characters in it. Each character must be one of the Roman alphabet, um, plus some punctuation and some spaces and some numbers. Um, and here's how you delimit them and so on and so forth. Well, that works great if you're doing that in the United States. But if you want to run this file sharing program somewhere where people use the Cyrillic alphabet or they use Arabic letters or they use some other thing, then, then your protocol doesn't work for them. Right? So now you need some additional change to the protocol to make sure that it works for people in their own language, or you have to force everybody who wants to use this protocol to learn English. 
and so that that itself is just like that's this is just a decision that you have to make when you're building this protocol how do you do that um that's a very sort of user visible set of choices right like where do these where where are these things where are these file names transferred how are they written how do we define that um, i tend to work on communications protocols secure communications protocols and the questions there um, the decision the kinds of decisions that we make there are like how long does it take to establish that you're having a conversation that you're making a, a communication between two parties what are the properties of that communication for example can someone who can see the messages as they flow across the network can they tell what is being said like is it confidential between the two endpoints if it is confidential between the two endpoints how does each endpoint know who the other one is right maybe i'm making the phone call to you how do i know that it's you i can hear your voice but if somebody wanted to pretend to be you they could just make a recording of your voice and play it back to me and i would think it was you so what are the mechanisms the protocol offers for each party to identify one another or Maybe you care more about anonymity. Maybe you want to make sure that there's a way that the other party can't identify me, right? Imagine that I'm building a tool to support whistleblowers who don't want to identify themselves. They want to be able to connect and be sure that they're anonymous. So they dump some information, some documents, or some like, hey, you should go investigate this thing over here, and they don't want anything to tie it back to them. And so you're making decisions around like, what are the, we call it information security properties of the of the channel that you're establishing. Uh, but you also want to know what are the reliability properties? What are the speed properties? You know, maybe there's a maximum amount of information that can be transferred over this channel safely. And you're designing the protocol, thinking about those questions and looking at the choices, choices in terms of math and cryptography, choices in terms of network latency, um, choices in terms of authenticity, uh, how the ident how identities are structured, like what is an identity, you're sort of, at, you have to ask all of those questions in order to engage with the protocol design at some level. Okay, so say you're working on a protocol, say you get a new protocol established for, for the Debian system, for instance, and that protocol says that the Debian system will only engage in communications with other systems that follow certain practices, how far reaching can the impact of that kind of change be? Like how much influence can you have? I don't tend to work with groups that have the kind of sway where I can just say my way or the highway, right? Um, I'm, not, I'm not part of the 800 pound gorilla, right? If Google wants to, Google can say, by the way, this is what Google products are doing. And if you want to interoperate with us, that's fine. And here's what you'll do. I don't operate there. I don't work for Google. I don't particularly want to work for Google. But if Google is making good decisions, I'm happy to like work with them and talk to them and try to encourage them to make better decisions that will have an impact on the folks who want to interoperate with Google. So a lot of what I do is to talk to engineers, to talk to managers, to talk to product designers who are part of these other projects. I also write software, right? So I'm, I'm helping to make some of these decisions within other operating systems. You mentioned Debian, right? So I work on the Debian project. A lot of projects take what Debian does and just use it because it's a, it's a foundational operating system. So there are other operating systems that derive from Debian. And if we can fix a default in Debian, in a couple of releases, it'll flow downstream to these other distributions and those they might change their mind. Debian's free software, right? That means they get to change their mind. We, can, we don't control them. 
But if we can change the defaults in Debian, maybe some other folks will pick up those defaults. Um, and if we change the defaults with a plausible subset of systems that are on the internet, then people who want to broadly interoperate will say, oh, we need to accommodate that because look, here's a set of systems that are doing that. So, you know, sometimes what I do is I work with folks who are very much on the edge of sort of the Overton window of what's possible on the network today, right? Like I work with the Tor project. I'm not a Tor project developer. I'm not any sort of official part of the Tor project, but I work with them and I really appreciate what they're doing. And the Tor project builds anonymity preserving software. It's far from perfect, but it's the best thing that we've got on the network right now. And the decisions that they've made about how do we protect user privacy are things that the rest of the industry can learn from. So, I mean, it's funny, you get pushback occasionally. Someone says, well, you know, why are you pushing for all this privacy? If someone wants that much privacy, they should just use Tor, right? Right. And so that's a situation where the existence of the Tor project is a little bit frustrating to me because I want to say, no, 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 the Tor project is leading the way towards providing people privacy and y'all should be following. You're not going to get as far as Tor because Tor has a very different mission than, say, Google, right? Google, Google is not invested in user privacy. They're doing better now than they did in the past on user privacy, but their primary interest is about serving you ads. Um, and monetizing the information that they have and organizing all the information that they have, including information about people that some people would rather be private. Um, but if the, Tor if the Tor browser is out there and it's doing things that are more privacy preserving for their users and enough people are using it, then other people who operate on the internet are going to need to accommodate those situations. And that makes it more plausible for someone like Google to make a better decision. You see this already with Firefox. I won't say that Firefox is making all of the perfect decisions, um, but they're significantly more privacy focused than Google is. And they've learned from the Tor project and they're actually incorporating code that was originally just Tor project code into Firefox and making it available gradually, slowly, conservatively for the users of Firefox. The latest version of Firefox will have more privacy preserving choices available. Um, and hopefully eventually some of those mechanisms will be turned on by default. So there's a bunch of different ways that you can sort of push the ecosystem. You could also go to somebody who runs a large server deployment and say, hey, this thing here is a problem. Do you think you guys might be able to make a change in the way that your configurations are? And if a large organization does, then that can be a major change. One example of that is we've been trying to move the web towards HTTPS, which is the secure version of the web protocols. HTTP is the insecure version. And the uptake of HTTPS was relatively small, you know, some handful of a percent of, of websites offered HTTPS just six or seven years ago. I might have the numbers exactly a little bit off in terms of the dates or the percentages, but it was a, it was a low uptake. And since the Snowden revelations, basically, we've seen a massive improvement. And one of the biggest upticks in um, HTTPS adoption was some of the big service providers, including, for example, Cloudflare, which just hosts a bunch of websites, they said, oh, well, now we have the protocols and mechanisms available to us to turn this on by default for people. It used to be manual and fiddly and you had to update it and you had to remember to like fix your website every year or so or it would break. And we pushed a bunch of protocols that allowed you to automate that sort of thing. And we and there was a big push to make it possible to get credentials for HTTPS, which was the most tricky business, in an automated way, for free, gratis. And so the result was we have 
the new certificate authority that's able to make these certificates. We have automated tools for requesting them and for maintaining them and updating them. And all of a sudden, Cloudflare was able to say, we run a million websites, we're turning it on for all of them. And so boom, all of a sudden, you have this big shift in what's available and what the, what the baseline expectation can be for what a host can do. Now, that doesn't solve all the problems, right? None of these things are solving all the problems. You're taking little steps where you can. In fact, one of the concerns is Cloudflare operates a million websites, so they are all running HTTPS, but Cloudflare still gets to see what people are doing on those websites because Cloudflare operates them. So there is a whole question about consolidation there, but it's still way better than just using HTTP in the clear because in that case, everyone on the network between anybody using Cloudflare and Cloudflare could see exactly what was going on and could even tamper with the traffic. So you, know, so you make these changes, you hope that each change is a slight improvement over the previous one, and each change might introduce some new problems that you didn't have before, and so this is just like, this is an ongoing process. It's really incredible, all the pieces that kind of work together to push this change to, as Daniel says, you know, push the ecosystem. But you know, after hearing the story of HTTPS, um, I couldn't help but say, you know, this sounds like a tremendous amount of work that, you, that went into pushing, you know, organizations like Cloudflare to do the right thing. And, um, and that, that prompted this discussion. And so this is one of the reasons why I work on the underlying software as well, right? Cloudflare doesn't run all their own Cloudflare code. They run a lot of tools that other people wrote. And a lot of those tools are free software. And so getting people to change their configurations is hard. Getting people to change their software is hard. Even getting people to upgrade is hard. But getting people to upgrade is the is the lowest bar there because everybody knows everybody who's serious about maintaining like a stable and secure information infrastructure understands that you need to upgrade. And so what I want to do is I want to make it so that the next time you upgrade, the thing you get is going to do the right thing by default. So maybe I can't convince you to do this thing, but I'm pretty sure that within four years you're going to have upgraded your system to the next version of whatever you're using, next operating system, next web server next TLS stack, next networking, whatever, you're gonna upgrade that. And so if I can get those changes in now, then in four years when you decide to upgrade, it'll be available to you and maybe it'll be on by default. And I won't have to convince you of anything. All I had to convince you was you need to do your upgrades, which everybody knows you're supposed to do the upgrades. So, okay, making sure I understand. If you make a change in Debian, someone else can come in and just grab that code and use it? Well, it's free software, uh -huh. right? I mean, the stuff I work on is all free software. So the design for free software says that if you're gonna distribute software for other people to use, then you need to also distribute the source code for it. Now, you might not want the source code, in which case, fine, don't take it, but it's out there. It's been published alongside the binaries that you expect to run. Um, and so, if you want to grab my latest changes, you can see them. I publish them, right? That's my goal is to publish the changes so you can see exactly what I'm doing. I don't think we should be asking anyone to run software that they don't know what it's doing. Now, again, you might not have the time or the skill or the interest to know exactly what your software is doing. You might say, just make it work. I want to press the shiny button. That's totally fine too. You got, people have other things to do. But if you want to inspect it or you want to pay someone to inspect it, you ought to be able to do that. If you want somebody who's your ally to inspect it and make sure it's doing what you want, you need to be able to do that. So source code's available. You want to grab it and apply it in your, in your wherever you're deploying your, these tools, you're free to do that. Um, now, not everyone will, 
and that's also fine, right? In fact, Cloudflare runs a lot of code that is just Cloudflare specific. They don't distribute it. They don't issue it to other people. Um, and you know, if I was to propose a change to a tool that Cloudflare uses, they might decide to not take that change. That's also fine, right? That's part of it being up to them. That's part of their responsibility to make those decisions. But yeah, when I'm, you know, if I make a change to some software, my goal is to have other people adopt it if they want it. So Daniel and I have talked a lot at this point, and I asked him to pull together some concluding thoughts. And I asked him if there was anything we hadn't covered, which is, of course, laughable to ask that because it's just, there's so much to cover. So anyway, here's what he said. Uh, the space is really large, right? I mean, the questions about how our infrastructure shapes the social possibilities is huge if you're willing to step back and look at these questions. Um, and so I, what I hope is that more people will be willing to do it. I hope that more engineers will understand that the decisions that they make actually have um, social and political impact, even if they're not writing laws, right? And I also hope that, this, that the engineers who are working, who are confronting legal choices, will not just make choices the way that you describe on the basis of what's legal, what can we get away with, but will ask questions about what's the ethical thing to do here. Should I make a mobile phone network that enables the possibility of co-traveler? Or should I look for mechanisms to provide mobile phone connectivity where there is no place to collect the kind of data that, that a co-traveler program builds, right? Like how, you, could make, you could make a communication system that doesn't permit that kind of metadata aggregation. How do you do it? These are interesting engineering questions. Good engineers should be asking them. And they should be looking at the systems that they're building and saying, this isn't right. There's a problem here because of the capacity of the system to do these things. So we should look at how this capacity should be changed, right? And so the more that we can convince engineers to be thinking about that and raising those questions and also listening to the engineers who raise those questions, I think the better off we'll be. These decisions can't be made just by the engineers, right? But the engineers understand what the problems are in ways that other people aren't going to see them. And is that what you do when you go to conferences? Like, do you go to conferences and speak about these issues and talk to other engineers, you know, talk to engineers and Yeah, and it's not about speaking. It's as much about listening as it is about speaking, right? If you, if you have a technologist who understands, I don't understand the mobile phone network very well, right? But if I go and I talk to somebody who's an engineer who works on the mobile phone network and I ask them, how do you guys defend against, like, how do you defend the users of your network against uh, someone who wants to impersonate their phone. There's an interesting conversation to be had there. And when you get down into the details, you'll start to hear stories about the way things work or don't work, right? You'll hear stories about the way their networks are constantly attacked. If you operate a large network, you'll know that the network is not just the, the idle place. It's, a, it's an active place. There's people on it that are trying to do stuff on your network that you don't want them to do. Um, and if you say, well, how do you defend, you have a lot of data about your users, how do you defend that data? How do you protect your users from that information? You'll maybe hear some disturbing answers. Maybe they don't have an answer, but that itself is an interesting conversation to bring up and sort of get them asking those questions internally. But if we don't have any pushback from the rest of society to say, this is important, either from a business sense or from legal constraints or whatever, I guarantee you that the companies that collect all this data will find somebody who has sufficient engineering chops and no ethics, who's willing to build them whatever system they want to build, right? 
So we need pushback from outside the engineers as well to say this matters, right? It matters to me that I use a mobile phone network that doesn't provide these capacities for surveillance. It matters to me that my backup software encrypts the backup and doesn't leave it in the clear, right? It matters to me that I know who it is that I'm talking to when I'm on a phone call, right? It matters to me that I can do an anonymous communication with a reporter, right? If we don't prioritize those things, they're not gonna get built. All right, um, I'm gonna end the episode here, although Daniel and I spoke much longer than this, honestly, and um, I, I wanted to include all of it. You know, we talked about, we talked much more about technology freedom. We talked about the internet activist, Aaron Swartz. Um, I'd love to do another episode discussing that. And I'd also love to do an episode where we do like just a bit more of a how-to, where we talk about you know what people can do to shore up their information security and what people can do to help these activists out there in the world that are that are working to kind of improve security and freedom for everyone. I'm sure there's a lot to do to support them. So if you have a question, please get in touch. I'm happy to put things up on the site as well. And I just want to find out more about what's needed before I do that. In the meantime, you've been listening to Talking Human Rights. This has been part two of Talking Technology with our guest, Daniel Kahn Gilmore of the ACLU's Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project. I'm your host, Heather Robertson-Gaston. Our assistant producer and editor is Sibet Partee. You can find us on the web at www.talkinghumanrights.com.